Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So welcome. Okay. So our topic for tonight is the real presence. And so what we want to look at first is, um, how do we know? And then, granted that we believe in the real presence, how does it happen? So that's what the second how is. How does it happen? Of course, I'm not going to be able to answer that. But we can say something about what it isn't, and therefore something about how it happens. And our answer is going to be it happens like this, um, transubstantiation, and what that means. Um, and then maybe we'll draw some consequences um, from that. All right, so that's our, our plan. All right, so why do we believe in the real presence? How do we know? Our first question. All right. so how do we know? Yes, that's the right answer. 10 points, 100 points. And that's why we believe it. And that's the only reason we believe it, is because Jesus said so. And otherwise, we wouldn't believe it because um, it's, um, there aren't natural reasons for believing it. Because as we'll see, it's something entirely supernatural and other than everything in our experience. Right? Last time when we were going through the, the figures in the Old Testament and we looked at the manna and we said that the very name manna, meaning what's that, is an appro- was an appropriate figure in part because um, the mystery of the real presence is something out of our experience. So we don't have any experience of one thing um, becoming another thing, zap like that, without, without a series of continuous changes that would lead to that, and nor do we have something becoming another thing and still looking like the first thing, nor do we ever have something simply becoming Jesus' body and blood. So it's out of our experience. So we believe it only because Jesus used some pretty strong words when he spoke about this. Where, above all? What's that? John 6. So John 6, a year before he instituted the Eucharist, he prepared the disciples by saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, but he didn't yet explain how he was going to give them his flesh and blood. He does that a year later at the Last Supper to the apostles when he says, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood. So why do we believe it? Because of those words in particular. All right, so that's the first reason. But, and so we could say, we believe it because of scripture. All right, so that's our first reason. But as Catholics, we're not, we don't go by scripture alone, right? 
So in addition to saying we believe it because Jesus said so, and it's written down in three gospels and in the first letter of, um, to the Corinthians and in John 6, and why else do we believe it? You all know. Okay, Eucharistic miracles are helpful, but they won't, they're not the principal reason why we, would, why we believe it. They can confirm. Tra yeah, tradition. So we go by scripture and tradition, right? And so how do we access that tradition so that we can be sure? Yeah, good answer. How can, so how do we access tradition? Can we break that down? Where do we find that? Church fathers. Church fathers. All right, so we'll, we'll look. So we're going to look a little bit at the church fathers. That would take us a long time if we were to do it right, but we'll do it quickly. So church fathers, what else? How else do we access tradition? Councils. Yeah, councils. So we're going to look at the Council of Trent. It has something to say about this. In fact, it's a dogma of faith because of the Council of Trent. And that's actually our third source the magisterium of the church. Right, so we know about this from scripture, from tradition, and from the magisterium of the church. What would be another source of tradition in addition to the fathers and the councils? Catechism. Great, the catechism, right? So the catechism, we'll look at that, or maybe we won't, but you should afterwards if we don't have time, um, all right? And one other thing that would be part of tradition. Okay, all right, good, that, that too, but still something else. How do we access tradition? The liturgy of the church. And so the mass, the mass would be our clearest source of the faith in the real presence, okay? And all the Eucharistic prayers that speak about it, ask for him to become present and then adore him present. And so those are, would be our principal, so scripture, tradition, magisterium, and then tradition would be the church fathers, councils, liturgy, and the other great saints and doctors. Okay? All right, so let's go through it. So um, the first place would be scripture. And so we did this, I rushed at the end there last time a little bit, um, John 6, Jesus affirming the necessity of eating his flesh and his blood, which presupposes that he's got to give us somehow his flesh and his blood. He didn't explain it then, but at the Last Supper, he uses those words, this is my body. Right, well, that's, that's the principal reason right there that we believe. Now, some Protestants, all right, so Protestants have all different views, and maybe at the end we can say some of those views. But um, one of them named Zwingli, one of the um, original reformers, contemporary with Luther, understood those words, this is my body, to mean, does anybody know? This is a symbol of my body. Right? This is a sign of my body. But that's, notice that that's not what Jesus says. Right? In other words, the words, this is my body, are emphatic. It's true, sometimes he uses metaphors, like he says, I'm the true vine. But that metaphor, has a reference to the Eucharist, right? He's the true vine because he's gonna give us his blood, which in some way gives us um, life, right? like the vine and the branches. 
Um, but here, so in other places when he speaks a metaphor, he clarifies it, right? But here, he doesn't clarify it. Okay. Right, fantastic, great question. I can't properly answer that until next time. So you have to come back. <laughs> but right, So the, the reason for that is because that in memory of me wasn't in memory of my presence. It was in memory of something else. What was it in memory of? His passion. So we're going to come back to that when we talk about the mass. Right, so the mass is, uh, reality becomes present here and now, but a past moment is uh, memorialized. But we're gonna, that's more complicated than, than I just said it, and we'll talk about that next time, right? Because in some way, that past moment really is made present, but not in exactly the same way that he's present, right? So yes, that in memory of me has a meaning, and it's referring to something, and when he said that, still to come, right, the next day. But for us now, 2,000 years ago, great. Thank you. Okay, so and that's the principal reason. Jesus says, this is my body. And when we use the word this, right, we generally, that's a demonstrative pronoun for those of you who've studied grammar. Or, and and it's, it's there for pointing to something particular and concrete. And so it would be what he had in his hands, that bread, right, which was bread at that moment, this is my body. Right, so the words are emphatic. Um, so that's the principal reason. And the exact same thing with the wine. Right? This is the chalice of my blood. I'm saying that this is his blood. So that's why we believe it. Right? First and basic reason. And there really isn't much need for complicated exegesis. Right? It's the plain sense. So here's a funny case in which um, normally right, Protestants pride themselves on sola scriptura, scripture alone and the plain sense of scripture, and think Catholics uh, are run fast and loose with the plain sense of scripture, right? But here's a case where it's the other way around. Our reason for believing this is principally the simple, plain sense of scripture, and, but it's because the church has always taken it in that sense. Let's go to step two, tradition. So let's start with the fathers. Um, so um, a first father that speaks about it is one of my favorites, Saint Ignatius of Antioch, also called Ignatius Martyr because he had a spectacular martyrdom. So he was the um, ordained uh, disciple of the apostles, um, ordained probably by Peter as Bishop of Antioch after Peter because Peter went to Antioch after he left Jerusalem. Um, that's where people were first called Christians before he went to Rome. And so Ignatius was his successor in Antioch, which was really the, the heart of Christianity at that time. Rome was the seat of um, Peter and his successors, but that the most populous Christian city would have been Antioch. So St. Ignatius Martyr was bishop in Antioch for 50 years, disciple of the apostles, um, and he was chosen um, for an exemplary martyrdom in the, about the year 107. The emperor Trajan wanted to take a figurehead of Christianity and feed him 
um, to the beasts in the wild beasts in the Colosseum. And so Trajan took him from Antioch in chains by boat to Rome, and he was fed to the wild beasts in the Colosseum and actually died that way. But on the way there, he wrote seven letters, which you should all read. They're, they're not that long, and they're magnificent, um, in which he writes to seven churches on, on his way to being uh, martyred. And um, in those letters, he writes about the concerns that he has um, for the faith of the Christians in these seven cities that he's writing to. And um, the principal thing he's concerned about is a heresy. Sorry, this takes us away from the Eucharist, but just it gives you a little background. A heresy, does anybody know what's the first heresy in the history of the church? Denying, what's, yeah, you would think denying the divinity of Christ, but it wasn't. It was denying the humanity of Christ. So they thought he was some kind of phantom or spirit, and didn't, they denied his true um, human um, nature and body. Right? So St. Ignatius, to write against this, he uses the Eucharist as an argument. And so he says, they, those people who disbelieve, there's a name for them, called docetism. The docetists, that means appearance. So the people who thought that Christ was just an appearance, didn't have a real body, and St. Ignatius says, they abstain from the Eucharist because they refuse to acknowledge the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father raised up. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the Eucharist is flesh of Christ, the same flesh that got nailed to the cross and the same flesh that rose from the dead. So how can you say that Jesus didn't have a true humanity when we receive that very flesh every Sunday in the Eucharist? That's the argument. So he's arguing from the Eucharist, from the real presence, to something else, right? Normally when you make an argument, you start with what's strongest to get to something disputed or weak. So here he's starting with the liturgy and the real presence of Christ in the mass to get to the fact that Jesus had a real body and he had real veins that had real blood. Otherwise, where do we get the blood that we receive on Sunday? Okay? Right, so that's our first one. And let's skip ahead. To, uh, so that's 107. 180 AD, St. Irenaeus makes the exact same argument. All right, so it's the same thing, it's a repeat. And he's writing against the Gnostics who had this same belief, denying the true humanity of Jesus, and he argues in the exact same way. So th these Gnostics that he's writing against, they had a, a pessimistic view about the body. They thought the body was just something to escape from. The body won't rise on the last day. Um, it was a form of Platonism or, or dualism. And right? so the goal of life is to escape from the body. And therefore, the Eucharist, if you're a Gnostic, doesn't make sense. But they would still receive the Eucharist. It would be incoherent. And so he writes to, um, in his book, Against the Heresies, um, if the body isn't saved, if we're not going to rise, why did Jesus give us his body and his blood? Right? That's the argument. And the analogy that he makes is Jesus gives us his body and his blood like a seed. He's giving us his body, the very body, 
that got nailed to the cross, but the body that rose from the dead, that's like a seed. It gets planted in us when we receive the Eucharist so that we too will rise, right? And that's exactly how Jesus presented it in the Bread of Life discourse, right? Receive my flesh and I will raise you up on the last day because the flesh that we receive is the flesh of he who is the life, right? The way, the truth, and the life. So St. Irenaeus says, if the body isn't saved, then neither did the Lord redeem us with his blood, and neither is the cup of the Eucharist communion in his blood, and nor is the bread that we break the partaking of his body, for blood comes from veins and flesh. And so if you don't believe that Jesus had them, right, you can't. So again, arguing from the reality of the real presence to the fact that Jesus had to have a true humanity and that we will rise as he did receiving his humanity as long as we receive it well, right? Let's skip to um, St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose and St. Cyril of Jerusalem about the same time in the fourth century. Um, and they, um, we have today the homilies that they gave to the newly baptized. And among the newly baptized by St. Ambrose would have been somebody else, anybody know? Who did Ambrose baptize? St. Augustine, right? So St. Augustine would have heard, if not this exact homily that we have today, one very much like it. And so an odd thing about, if, so if you were in the RCIA in the fourth century, St. Augustine was, right? He was a catechumen, and St. Ambrose was the bishop who um, received him. If you were in the RCIA in the fourth century, you wouldn't actually have learned anything about the sacraments because it was considered to be secret knowledge reserved only for the baptized. So when you were in the RCA, you learned all about the Christian life and things like that, and scripture, but you weren't taught about the, the sacraments. As soon as you were baptized, there would be a whole week, Easter week, the octave of Easter, in which every night the bishop would preach to the neophytes, the newly baptized, and he would explain baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. And so we have these beautiful homilies of the um, several of the fathers, St. Ambrose, St. Cyril, where they explain what the Eucharist is for the first time to these newly baptized um, Christians. And so um, I'm going to read you a little bit from St. Ambrose and St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Same time, about 380. But in opposite parts of Christianity, Ambrose in Milan, Cyril of Jerusalem, obviously in Jerusalem. Um, and so let's start with St. Cyril. He says, you have been taught and instructed, now, now you have been, that what seems to be bread is not bread, though it appear to be by the sense of taste. Right? Tastes like bread, feels like bread, smells like bread. And that what seems to be wine is not wine, though taste would have it so, but the blood of Christ. Right? So strengthen your heart in faith. That's what he says to them. And then he talks about, well, why, how do we believe this? And so he asks, well, whose word is it that said that, right? So in the, in the mass, when the priest, um, up to that time, up to the consecration, he's speaking in the, the person of the church, right? And we're asking God for things. He uses the we. But then he changes pronoun, right? When he says, this is my body. He's now speaking in the eye of Christ, the, the person of Christ, all right, Christ 
Does he have, does he have the power to do this? Is the question, right? So St. Charles says, whose word is this? On a previous occasion, right, he turned water into wine. Right? It's the same man's word. And on a, another occasion, he said, obviously in his divinity, let there be light, and there was light. Right? And so um, we should be willing to believe right, that he can do uh, what his words say because he made the universe. Right? That's the argument. Let's, let's go to St. Ambrose. And he's, so St. Ambrose says, perhaps you say, the bread I have here is ordinary bread. Yes, before the sacramental words were uttered, this bread is nothing but bread. But the consecration, at the consecration, the bread becomes the body of Christ. Let us reason it out. How can something which is bread become the body of Christ? Well, by what words and by whose words are they consecrated? He says the words of Jesus Christ. Just as we said, all that was said before was said by the priest in the name of the people and in the name of the church. And now, um, when the moment comes for bringing down the holy sacrament into being, the priest doesn't use his own words any longer but he uses the words of Christ. And therefore, it's Christ's word that brings the sacrament into being. Well, what word is that? The word by which all things were made. Right? The Lord commanded, the heavens were made. The earth was made, the seas were made, etc. If then there is such power in the word of Jesus Christ that things begin to exist which did not exist before, right? the heavens and the earth, how much more powerful it is for changing something that exists into something else. In reality, it, I'm oh, sorry, for God, it, it's a piece of cake. I mean, it's, it's, it, there are some things that are hard for God. Redeeming us, how hard was that? Right, it was that hard. But making bread into his body is just say it and it becomes it, right, for God, for the power of God, right, that, that there's no cost in that. Right, that's easy. The question is, why would he want to? That's why I started with that last time. Right, so last time we gave all the reasons why he would want to do that. But here we're asking the how, and our answer is, let it be. All right? And that's how Ambrose presented it to St. Augustine, or more or less. And then he takes another example. Um, Our Lady conceiving right, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same power at work that enabled her to conceive virginally the word of God and that now makes the bread into that same body that she conceived in her womb. Okay? Questions on that? All right, so that's the argument from tradition, maybe I'll give you a few more. Do you want any more examples? Okay. So my favorite is Ambrose. So the, if you want to look this up, the name of the work is called um, On the Sacraments. And it's just simply his homilies to the neophytes. That's the fancy word for the newly baptized. 
And the same for St. Cyril. It's the... I'll give you one from Gregory of Nyssa. So he's um, Saint, um, towards the end of the fourth century, same time as Ambrose and Cyril. And he says, rightly then do we believe that now also the bread which is consecrated by the word of God is changed into the body of God by the word. So it's kind of a play on words. The bread which is consecrated by the word of God, the word of Jesus, right, this is my body, becomes the body of the word, in other words, the body of Jesus Christ. It is changed into the body by means of the word, right? Because the words of Christ are words that do what they say, right? So there's a beautiful analogy between the miracles of Christ and the sacraments. In the, word, in the miracles of Christ, so other people, when they work miracles, right, they would say, in the name of the Lord, such and such, right? In the name of the Lord, arise. Jesus didn't do that, right? There's a beautiful episode, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where a leper comes to him. He says, if you will, you can make me whole, right? And what does Jesus say? I will be whole, be healed. And so that word was a word of power, right? He did it in his own name, and his words accomplished what they said. The sacraments work the same way because it's the same person's word. Right? That's the idea. Right? So the same power that healed the leper through that word, I will be healed, is what says, this is my body. Right? And again, that's why we believe it. All right? And that's basically what the fathers are saying. Let me give you one last one. And John Chrysostom, called the Golden Mouth, so the most eloquent of the fathers, about the same time, 400. And he says, speaking about the Eucharist, this which is in the cup is that which flowed from his side. Right, so what we have in the chalice, after the words of consecration, is the very blood right, that flowed from his side and that rose. All right. Let's take the second piece. So we said fathers and councils. Um, and so let me just briefly, we'll come back to the council later. But right now, um, when, um, sometimes it, it's surprising, it might be surprising, that in the first millennium, there's no council that defines the real presence. So you might say, ah, this is a late development, like this comes in the second millennium. Um, but when there's no... What does that really mean when the church doesn't pronounce on something until later? It was assumed and it was peacefully held. Right? So the first time the church has to define the real presence is in the 11th century. And there was a heretic named Berengarius. And Berengarius had a position similar to Zwingli and Calvin and many in the at the time of the Reformation, that it was a symbol, right? So he, he revered the Eucharist, recognizing it as a sacrament that gives grace, but he thought that it was merely a sign of Christ's body and blood, that if we receive it devoutly, we would get grace. And so it caused an uproar, and he had to um, retract that view and solemnly profess the reality of the body and blood in the Eucharist 
and um, that it changed, that there was a change, a substantial change of the bread and the wine into Christ's body and blood. So that's the first time that the church defines the real presence because it's the first time it had to, right? We saw the fathers just take it as a matter of course and teach it, but it wasn't challenged. Right? So it's challenged for the first time um, in the 11th century. So something like 1070. Yeah. And then it's challenged in the Reformation. And so the Council of Trent. Yeah. So let's just look at the Council of Trent. All right, so the, the first canon of the Council of Trent on the Eucharist says, if anyone denies that in the most holy Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained, but says that he is in it only as in a sign or figure, or by his power, what comes next? Anathemacet, in other words be excommunicated. All right, so that's the, that's the most important teaching right there. All right, so that puts it forth as a dogma of faith, something that if we were to deny it, we would be denying um, a foundation of the faith, and therefore we would um, be putting our own faith in, uh, <clears throat> we would be denying our own faith in some sense. All right? So far so good. Now, the that canon uses a word substantially. The whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. Now comes the hard part. So now what I'd like to do, if that's okay, is to go on a little more to this how and look at transubstantiation and what we understand by Christ being substantially present. Because somebody could say, all right, I believe in the real presence. Christ is present in the Eucharist. That's not hard to believe. He's present in this room. Right? Jesus said, wherever two or three of you are present, I'm with you. Or he said, whatever you did to the least of my little ones, you did it to me. So in some sense, he's present in each one of us. Right? He's present uh, in various ways. He's present when the word of God is read. Right? As his word. He's present when we pray and in our prayer. Right, so there... Jesus isn't present only in the Eucharist. So how do we distinguish this real presence? Those, are those other presences not real? What do you think? They're not substantial. Right? They're real, but they're not substantial. All right, so what do we mean by that? All right, so now we need a little philosophy background. Sorry, bear with me. Um, so it's really helpful in understanding the real presence um, to have just a a little bit, um, some elements of what I'm going to call the philosophy of common sense. The, because it's not any particular school. It's true, Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas are maybe the clearest ways to access the philosophy of common sense. But it's a philosophy that's based on experience that everybody has. All right, so everybody has an experience of, um, of change. So we all change throughout our life. But we say that we're substantially one. In other words, that I'm me from when I was a fetus 
to now until the time I die, even though I go through all kinds of changes. So that's what, what we, philosophy calls that um, the substance of something. Right? So what something is, and then the things that change, being one foot, um, being five feet, um, et cetera, um, those things we call accidents. And those are accidents, um, there can't be self-standing, right? A five feet just can't be out there. It's gotta be in something, right? It's in a substance. The substance, we could say, stands under those accidents. And so all of us have that experience of the world that there are beings, each one of us, that are, are a whole, are a, let's call them a, the technical, technical term, a substance um, in which accidents or appearances come and go. All right? So I'm still me, even though now I'm five foot and once I was one foot. Now I'm 59 and once I was one. All right? Um, and so it's part of common sense that everything in the material world is composed of what we can call substance and accidents. And they answer different questions about a thing. And so if I ask, what is it? What is it? Human being. That's my substance. But if I ask, how is it? What would that be? That would be some accident or other. Five feet tall, 59 years old, white, brown, whatever it may be. Right? And so the accidents answer a different question, how something is, but the substance answers the question, what it is. And what is it that our senses grasp? The accidents of things. But our intellect, our mind grasps what it is. But our senses don't directly, right? Our senses see the appearances, but it's our mind that grasps the what is it, a human being, a cow frog. All right, so far so good. All right, let's apply this now to the Eucharist. So when Jesus says this, that pronoun is referring to some substance, right? And the substance would be what he had in his hands, which was at that moment bread. Right? And then when he says this is my body, what should we think? That the substance at the end of the sentence is now the substance of his body through the power of his words. Right? So what happened? One substance became another substance. All right? And why do we call that? Transubstantiation, right? It simply means that, from one substance into another substance, a change in substance. Now, normally, it doesn't work exactly like that, right? That one substance changes into another substance like that, right? Normally, what happens, so what would be an example of one substance becoming another substance? Suppose I've got some wood in a, and I make a big pile and I light it, and that wood becomes ash at the end, right, through the fire. So that, too, is a substantial change, right? But the difference is that it took a while, right? There was there were a bunch of changes that had to happen before the wood finally became ash. Well, let's take another example. Um, I had dinner tonight, so I ate an orange. 
And so what was one substance, an orange, is now another substance, uh, me, right? Part of me. And the same thing happened with all of you at dinner, right? And so one thing got turned into another thing. But through a, a series of um, continuous changes, right? The digestive ju juices and so forth. So those are examples, but we call that something else. We call that transformation because one thing gradually loses its first form and takes on another form. Right? So n natural changes are better called transformations. But here in the case of the Eucharist, through the power of Christ's words, the what it is, right? So we said substance answers the question, what is it? So the what it, it was at the beginning of the sentence, bread, now becomes another what is it, Christ's body. All right? And as we said, we believe it only because Jesus said it. Okay, so just, just trying to get my head wrapped around here about different presences of God. Mm -hmm. um, one question I was, I was kind of conversing with was like just last week and just couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. So we would say that like as, as, as the baptized, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within mm -hmm. us. How is that different from the Eucharist? Like when we say the Holy Spirit dwelling within us has substance or does it, does it lack substance because it isn't material? Um. I mean, sure, there's the divine substance, which is everywhere. But the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, it's the substantial presence of his divinity or his humanity? Both. But directly, first, his humanity, right? Because that's what the words say. He didn't say, this is my Holy Spirit or this is my divinity, but he said, this is my body, right? So that's, what, that's the difference. Jesus is in this room in his divinity, upholding us all in being, right? If he were to stop being present right here, there would be a zap and I would be nothing, right? And the same for all of us. But he's present in a special way above us in the tabernacle. He's present in the tabernacle, not just in his divinity, his divinity is upholding the tabernacle too, right? But he's present in the tabernacle in his humanity. How much of his humanity? All of it. We've got the whole Jesus Christ in the tabernacle. We don't have the whole Jesus Christ right here, right? Because we're missing his humanity here. Okay, so quick follow-up. So is, is it fair then to say that Jesus is more present in the Eucharist yeah. than he is? That's right, because here he's present only in his divinity. All right, that's the principal part, no doubt. But his humanity is pretty important, if, unless we're Gnostics or Docetists. He took on flesh for a reason. Okay, so his humanity is adorable. His humanity is the center of the universe. His humanity is that place in creation where God is in the only place where he is substantially and not merely upholding other things in being. Right, he's here upholding us in being, but he's in the tabernacle in his humanity, which, yeah. all right? So that's the difference, and that, that's, that's why it's important. Because yes, somebody could say, Jesus is present everywhere, so why do I need to go to church on Sunday? Um, I could, Jesus is present in my bedroom. True, but not in his humanity. Great, mm-hmm. Okay, okay, but that's a presence of his great question. So when, Okay, the, the question was, um, what's the difference between the real presence of the Eucharist 
and the presence of Christ when the priest acts in the person of Christ. All right, when the priest says the words, this is my body, he's acting in the person of Christ, and therefore Christ's power is present as he utter those, utters those words. But Christ isn't substantially present in the priest. Hopefully he's present by grace, indwelling in the priest, as in us. But we can, we don't even, that, we don't have to ask that question. Um, because he might not be, right? He could be in a state of mortal sin. But, um, so that's the presence of his power. And it's that power that makes the bread become his body, by which he becomes substantially present. And the only way he becomes substantially present. Okay? Great question. Thank you. All right. Um, so let's, let's add a second piece to this. So what's the difficulty? If we say, well, there are lots of examples where one thing becomes another thing, the orange becomes me, um, the hamburger becomes me, and the egg and the sperm become a baby, right? become a, a new being. Um, the corpse decomposes and becomes something else. All right, so we have lots of examples, but in all, we said there are two differences. In all those things, they happen, there's a kind of a gradual buildup. All right, maybe the, it becomes a, a human being in, a, in an instant. God infuses the soul. But um, there are a bunch of changes that lead up to that, right? And the same with all the other examples. So that's one difference. There's another difference. In the other things, it looks different after the change, right? That's the obvious difference, right? So the, the ash doesn't look like the, bread, the wood anymore. In the Eucharist, there are two miracles happening simultaneously. The first one we've mentioned, one thing, one what is it, becomes another what is it. The bread becomes his body. The wine becomes his blood. But the second miracle is that the appearances of the bread and the appearance of the wine remain exactly as they were. Right? And so... That's a second miracle that we have to believe, right? We have to believe that God is upholding those appearances even though they've lost their substance. Right? So before the words, this is my body, you had the appearances of bread inhering in bread. That's the way it usually is. Just as you have the appearances of human being inhering in bread me a human being. But after those words, this is my body, the what is it is now his body, so the substance is his body, but the accidents of the bread remain. How? Okay, divine power, right? So I mean, we don't have to go into the details of the how because simply let it be, but suspended, suspended in nothing. No longer in hearing in bread because we believe after those words, there's no more bread there. All right? So it's part of the Catholic faith that after those words, this is my body, we believe that there's his body there, but there's not bread there. But very much there are all the appearances of bread, unchanged so unchanged that no chemical analysis is going to show any difference. Right? There's going to be no weight change or chemical change 
And no scientist is going to be able to identify, distinguish the consecrated host from the unconsecrated host, except in the case of Eucharistic miracle, which uh, we'll leave out of the picture for the moment. Okay? So far, so good? Because the church gives us those words. That's, that's why we use them. And, but rightly understood, what's meant is the appearances, right? So the appearances still remain. And so we're calling them bread and wine by a kind of um, loose terminology. Right, so that's what we mean when we say that. Mm -hmm. Right, we have change of substance and mm -hmm. a congruency of the accidentals. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a, uh, an acolyte, okay. I'm doing liturgical uh -huh. things and vessels. And so would you say that the opposite is true? Because, so for example, when someone spills precious blood at Mass, you wipe it up with the purificator, and then after Mass, you take the purificator with the mm. Yeah. Right. Great. Okay. Right. So. Right. Exactly. So the the real presence is going to be under those appearances, as long as those appearances remain whole and integral. Once those appear, so the typical case though is, I mean, yes, it can spill, but the typical case is when we receive communion, right? So when we receive communion, we receive um, the host, and for a short time, it's the appearances are gonna remain, even though you can't see them, right? They're inside my stomach. But um, there's gonna be a process of breaking down those appearances by my um, stomach, by my digestive system, and once those appearances are broken down, um, then the real presence ceases, right? So that Jesus is going to be under the appearances as long as the appearances remain what they were. The exact moment, God knows, we don't know, but, but that will be the principle, all right? Does that make sense? So it's reasonable to think that Jesus remains in us with his real presence for about 10 minutes after we receive communion. Right? That's probably how long it takes for the stomach, the digestive system break down. And that's why... That's a really good time to pray. Each one of us is a tabernacle at that moment. We're just as much right, the place of the presence of God as the tabernacle. Each one of us is literally a tabernacle. There's a story about Saint um, uh, Philip Neri. So he would get irritated when people would receive communion and then immediately leave to leave the church and go home um, without waiting for the final blessing. So um, there's one woman who did this every time. And so he sent two of his acolytes out after her with lit candles. <laughs> She's tabernacle for 10 minutes. And so, yeah, that's good to remember. All right. So doing a Thanksgiving after Mass is a great practice, right? That's the most propitious time for prayer. And we want to thank him for coming into us. We can maybe say more about that in our last talk when we talk about communion. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah, so there's, there's nothing you can do no. like that. Yeah, I mean, Eucharistic miracles. But really, that's not the principal reason to believe. So I wouldn't go there. I would go, we believe this. So there's a, a great hymn by Thomas Aquinas. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, the um, Adoro Te Devote, which he wrote for the Corpus Christi, right? So he wrote the, the office, the liturgical office for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And in it, he says, sight, touch, and taste in thee are deceived. The ear alone safely is believed, right? Because the ear hears, this is my body. I believe all that the Son of God has spoken, then truth's own word, there's no truer token. So basically, St. Thomas is saying, empirical-wise, right, physical science-wise, there's absolutely no reason to believe. We only believe because, and this is why the Eucharist is Sacrament of faith, right? All the sacraments are sacraments of faith. But the Eucharist um, is not easy to believe. Jesus doesn't want to make it easy to believe. So let's ask that question now. Why not? Why didn't he um, make his presence visible? There's an obvious answer here. Okay, so one reason is because that way we wouldn't need faith. And so we wouldn't have any merit of believing it. Right? It was a hard teaching on John 6, right? and lots of people left him, but the apostles didn't. Why? You have the words of eternal life. Right? So Peter gives the same reason. He says, I believe you just because you said so. Right? So a lot of people left. So it's definitely intended to be a hard saying, but there's a merit. Right? There's the merit of faith. Right? So, that, it's so I tried to explain this last time, but let's do it again. So we said that the Eucharist Jesus is the bridegroom, right? The Eucharist is a bridal kind of gift. He wants to give himself to his spouse. We're his spouse, right? The church is the bride. But we're a bride in exile. We will be a bride no longer in exile if we persevere, if we make it, right? And the bride no longer in exile in the homeland will see the bridegroom and will see, receive the bridegroom unveiled. But this life is a time of trial and meriting. And so it's fitting that we receive the bridegroom just the same as in heaven. So there's, in terms of what's received in the Eucharist, we're receiving the same Jesus that will be our food of eternal life in heaven. But here we're receiving him in a way proper to walking by faith rather than by sight, which is for later. Okay, so that's, that's a great reason. There's another reason, even more obvious. Yeah. Right, that's it. <laughs> Jesus wants to feed us with his own body, but we're not a, and we shouldn't. We sh right, if he were to do that in, in the proper species, in other words, um, unveiled, that would be abhorrent and horrible for us. And that's what they were thinking in John 6, probably. Right, that he was talking about some kind of meat market. 
eat my flesh like you might buy a steak. And, and so they went away from him. And so he's giving himself to us in a better way under the appearances of things that we do eat. And in fact, under the appearance of things that we most commonly eat. Bread is the staff of life. So it's brilliant, right, that he does both of those things at the same time. He, he gives us the merit of faith, but he gives us himself under the appearances of what is good to eat. And the same thing with wine, all right? And then there's a third reason why the appearances remain, because those appearances localize him here. Right? So we've got those appearances in the tabernacle, and that's how we can be sure that we've got the real presence. Right? It's just as we said before, as long as those appearances remain integral, we know that we've got the real presence. So it localizes him here and enables us to adore him and receive him, but receive him in a way proper to human beings and not to cannibals. Let's take a break. Hey, let's start in again. We may, yeah, I might not be able to finish this tonight. We may have to carry over next time, but I'll do my best. Um, so let's go back to our transubstantiation and um, distinguish it from another idea that's held by our um, by Lutherans. Um, and that is consubstantiation. So what's the difference there? Does anybody know what's the difference? Okay, con means with. And so if you say consubstantiation, that would be saying um, together with the bread and the wine, Jesus comes into it. All right, that's not what Catholics believe. And in fact, the Council of Trent um, said anyone who holds that, Anathema said, so we don't want to hold that. But let's look a little about the reason behind it so we can hold this also not just by pure authority. Okay. Right? Okay, that consubstantial means that Jesus' divinity is of the exact same nature as the Father. So that, that's what we mean in the creed. So that would be with in other words, the same substance with the Father. Right, so it's totally independent. Here we're saying transubstantiation, not consubstantiation. And we're taking the con here really literally means with. And so here's the question. After the words, this is my body, is there any bread on the altar? No. Are there the appearances of the bread on the altar? Of course. And all of them, oh, by the way, let me just say something about that. All of the appearances, there are a lot of appearances, and maybe the word appearance isn't the, so the technical term would be accidents. What about the power to nourish that bread has? Is that present in the appearances of bread after the transubstantiation? Yes. So if you eat enough consecrated hosts, you'll get full and get nourished physically. And if you drink enough of the consecrated wine, which is his blood, you'll get inebriated. So it has the same properties, because that too is an accident. And what's another accident? Being in a place. Right? That's an accident of the bread and the wine, and it keeps it after the consecration just as before. So all of those appearances, accidents, properties remain exactly the same, and that's why no empirical science can show any difference. All right? 
But let's go back to this question. Um, why do we hold transubstantiation rather than consubstantiation? Because somebody could hold, Lutherans defend the real presence as Catholics do. So we share that faith in the real presence, but we differ on how he comes to be there. So for Luther, it would be Christ coming into the bread and the wine, which stay bread and wine, but now Christ is in them. Whereas for Catholics, it's the bread and the wine becoming. So I'm gonna give you a St. Thomas, this, I may fail at this in communicating this, but I'll try. Um, St. Thomas gives, I think, a brilliant explanation of the difference between these two. So he asks the question, how can something begin to be in a place where it wasn't previously? All right, let's take an example of fire. You get fire, imagine we have a fireplace in the back there. And fire could begin to be here because it was brought in from somewhere else, right? So it could begin to be here by movement. We could bring it here. Or what would be the more obvious way? We'd light a match and something else would become fire. The wood and the tinder will become fire. So we can turn something else into it. Let's take an example of conception. Um, the egg and the sperm become now a new human being. Right, so that would be a way, a new thing. But there could be another possibility. Um, trend, uh, um, in vitro fertilization, right? In other words, it could be made somewhere else and then transported and implanted. Now, I'm not going to talk about the moral aspects of that. That's for some other disciples class. But um, so again, a new human being could be brought by local movement to a new place or could become present there because other things, the egg and the sperm, turned into it. All right. And it seems that those are the only two possibilities. Something new begins to be where it wasn't before because it was brought there by movement or because something else got turned into it. Grant Given the fact that we believe in the real presence, right, so granted that we believe that because Jesus said so and the church teaches it, which of those two explanations is better for how Jesus begins to be on the altar when he wasn't previously? Yes, he was there on the altar as God, but after the consecration, he begins to be on the altar as man. So how did he get there is our question. Was it that he came there by some kind of local movement and came into it? That's Luther's answer. And present day Missouri Synod Lutherans. Or did something else become him? And which is the Catholic answer? The second. Something else, bread and wine, got transubstantiated into his body and his blood. And that's I mean, we believe it because Jesus said so, but it is also more reasonable when you think about it. Why is that? Because the first option is really impossible. All right, that's impossible for God. Um, let's think about it for a second. If you held that it was a local movement, some kind of movement, well, before the words of consecration, where's Jesus? In his humanity, right? His divinity is everywhere, but in his humanity? In heaven, right? Because on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended out of this world. And we don't know where that heaven is, that he is, but he's somewhere and not on this earth, right? So if we were, saying that, if we were to think that Jesus becomes present on the altar because he kind of flies into it by some kind of movement, he'd have to pass, we don't know where that heaven is, but he'd have to pass through a lot of territory. And it would take some time, right? There's the speed of light and things like that. And then... 
he would have to pass through all the intermediate places. And um, how could he be present in more than one place at the same time? All right, now you might say, well, that's easy, by location. Um, but there's a, Padre Pio, right? There are stories about Padre Pio that he could be in several places at the same time. He was physically in his monastery, but he was actually, there's a funny story about, um, there was a bombing expedition, the Allied forces at, during World War II, and they were gonna bomb the town of San Giovanni Rotondo, where Padre Pio's monastery was located. And so one of the US pilots reported that when he was about to do this bombing mission, he saw this guy in brown um, in the sky directing, directing him away from San Giovanni Rotondo. And this actually got reported in the US um, military archives. Um, and, but in any case, so what should we think about that? Was his body in two places at the same time? Or is it better to think his body was in one place and there was an appearance in another place? The second. The reason for this is simply that it's, it seems contradictory for one body remaining one to be in two different places, um, two different locations. All right, now you're gonna make some big objection. Well, the, the Eucharist is in a million places at once. Well, that's the point, right? He's present, we're gonna say, in a different way, and I'm gonna confuse you terribly, and I might have to finish this next time. But let me give it a try. If Jesus was coming in by local movement, then you'd have to say there was not just a bi-location, right, but a million location, right? Jesus would have to be going, because I used to go to, I lived in Rome for a long time, and I would go to mass in St. Peter's at seven in the morning, and it's, if you ever get the opportunity, it's incredible. Because 50 priests come out of the sacristy and go to 50 different little altars and celebrate mass pretty much at the same time. And so you look around, and here's a consecration over there, and one over here. And um, they're happening pretty much simultaneously, and Jesus is coming into all of them. If it was local movement, that would be a problem. But if it's something else turning into him, it's not a problem. All of the consecrations that are happening, wherever they're happening, yes, those appearances are in different places. But what we believe is those appearances, that the, uh, sorry, the bread that's under those appearances becomes the one Christ. He's not multiplied. Looks like he is. We don't actually change Christ in transubstantiation. But what happens is other things become him. But again, this is why it's so great that the appearances remain, because the appearances remain here. Right? And so Jesus is under those appearances, we could say under borrowed appearances. He's borrowing, as it were, the appearance of the bread and wine, which are in a million places, and the one Jesus is under all of those, because all of those turn into him. Uh, okay, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, great question. Not normally. There are some, though, right? But th that's never been the norm. So right from the beginning of the, the Reformation, the, the, the Protestant position was Jesus in the Eucharist, even though Lutherans held the real presence, ought not to be adored. 
We'll come back to that at the, in the last talk, I think. All right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, true. Great question. So I would respond like this: that um, a restaurant. So we don't. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, and neither does <laughs> neither does Thomas Aquinas on this matter. But. What's reasonable to think, what we see from the Gospels, is that yes, Jesus did walk through a door and it was no problem to him. So a resurrected body, a glorious body, the standard explanation is obeys the spirit. Right? The spirit has, is now our bodies in some way pose limits on our spirit, right? Our bodies get tired and, and all the rest and pose limits on what we, but a resurrected body doesn't pose those kinds of limits. So to be here or there, to go through a wall, no problem. To even not be recognized or be recognized, a resurrected body can do that. But to be in two distinct places and to be one body in two separate disconnected places seems like that's different than going through a wall because it seems to contradict the notion of being one body if I'm two bodies. So that's how... That's St. Thomas's answer to that. So St. Thomas didn't think there could be real bilocation, even for a resurrected body. But there certainly can be the appearance of bilocation. Right? And I don't think anything in the Gospels would make us need to revise that because Jesus didn't appear at two simultaneously in different places at the same time. All right? So that's... In, if, ah, yeah, I, could well be. I mean, I, I'm just simply going to plead ignorance on that one. Um, but he could appear, right? Certainly he could appear, but whether he does, I don't know. Um, I was going to say something, now I forgot. Um, oh, Luther's theory, yeah. So Luther's thought was that, so how then does Luther explain this and get around the, the obvious difficulties? Luther's explanation is that um, Christ, so he makes a kind of syllogism, Christ is God, God is omnipresent, and therefore Christ can be omnipresent or is omnipresent. So he can be everywhere because the divinity is everywhere. There's a problem with that reasoning. Anybody know what the problem is? Yeah, right, right, exactly, exactly. The problem with that reasoning is that um, Jesus' humanity, even after the resurrection, is still humanity. And therefore, it's proper to that humanity, that body, to be in a particular place um, that can be measured, right? And we think that place in which he's naturally present with parts outside of parts, I'm going to explain that a little more in a minute, is not here on earth, but in heaven. All right, and so his body, even after the resurrection, remains a body. Yes, it's a glorious body. It's a body that can do great things, but it's still a body. 
and therefore it's measured by a particular place and has to be one. So that's, so that's the problem with Luther's explanation. It seems to be blurring the distinction between the humanity and the divinity and treating the humanity like the divinity as if it could be omnipresent. And then there would be other problems with it, right? Because wh why would it just be in the Eucharist then and not um, here or, or anywhere else, right? So it, it clearly wasn't, it never really um, caught on as a, a, a proper explanation even in, uh, I'm not well versed in Lutheran theology, but I, I, it has obvious problems, okay? All right, let's um, go on to another. So this change, so everybody clear? Transubstantiation different than consubstantiation. So Jesus becomes present because something else turns into him, the bread and the wine. Does this take place over time or is it instantaneous? Instantaneous because it's not a natural change. It's happening through the omnipotent power. And another thing. What power can bring this about? The divine. Any created power? Could an angel transubstantiate? No. Right? No angel has the power to do that. Why? Because to make one thing another thing without any disposition of that one thing to become that, without using any created agency or power, requires omnipotence, infinite power. For God, it's... Easy, we said is, sorry, easy as pie, but um, because God has dominion over being. He who made nothing into something can make something into something else. But no creature can do that. All right, so the, the Eucharist is, um, it's a mirror. I heard um, yesterday we had in this very room a formation, so at the seminary there are formation conferences. And so Monteer Mikish was talking here, and he just, so he was talking about the gift of the priesthood. And he says, I've been a priest, I forget exactly how long he said, something like almost 50 years. And he said, I keep accounting these things. I've celebrated the Eucharist 18,000 times, and um, I've done 18,000 miracles. <laughs> That's right, so you could double it, 32. <laughs> so every, every Mass, is, yeah, double miracle that only God, that only the divine power can do. And there are other miracles that, yes, the divine power does it, like, say, a healing, but natural powers could do it if, you know, if you gave it enough time and you had the right medicine and so forth, but the divine power is, is doing something that natural forces could do. Here, no, right? The divine power is doing it, and only he can do it. And by the way, just on an aside, um, the idea that I might, that we could say I have a right to be ordained um, you can see how ridiculous that would be. I have a right to be able to be given the power to do something that God alone can do. Um, so it's his gift. Okay. Um, so we can say that transubstantiation is definitely above reason, but it's not against reason. Do you see that? Because that one thing become another thing isn't contradictory. There's strange things about it, right? That the appearances remain without anything in which they're being sustained. But that's not a contradiction either. If bread could uphold the appearances of bread, well, God can uphold the appearances of bread without the bread. Do you follow that? So that's not impossible, right? That those appearances after transubstantiation are now suspended with no bread under them, under, I'm not... 
I don't mean in the spatial sense, but... Um, so God can do that, right? He can uphold the, the appearance of the bread in being without needing the substance of bread. And the same for the wine. It's not a contradiction. It's miraculous, but it's not contradictory, right? Why would we believe a miracle? Because Jesus said so, the church said so, the tradition said so, okay? All right, let's look now. I'm gonna, I'm pushing my luck. I got seven minutes. Um, I'm gonna try and do a little about the mode and this is where it gets hardest, and we can pick up here next time. The mode of Jesus' present, presence in the Eucharist. Right, so it's clear that the way he's present in the Eucharist is unique because it's different than the way we're present here and now. Each one of us is present with a presence that has parts outside of other parts. Right? That's the nature of a body, is to have parts that are that could be chopped up, that could be divided. Sorry, I don't want to make a gruesome image there. Um, it's the nature of a body that parts are outside of other parts. Right? And, and that's what it means to have dimension or extension. And that's what puts us in a place. Right? We're in a place because our body has parts that are outside other parts that fill up a certain, um, is surrounded by other body, the air, et cetera, and um, occupies a certain place. So that's our natural mode of being in a place through extension. Right, Jesus clearly is present in the Eucharist not in that way. Why? Because he's too big, very simply, to be un under the dimensions of the consecrated host. Right? The consecrated host, let's say you've got an inch, inch long host. Jesus is six, we don't know, but the shroud We've got a copy of it upstairs there. Shows him to be pretty much like six feet tall. And so clearly his dimensions aren't um, extended in the Eucharist. Because if they were, when the Eucharist would be broken, say as the priest does, then Jesus would be broken in his dimensions. And we don't think that happens, right? And we think Jesus is every bit as much present if we have a gigantic host or if we have the smallest fragment. Sometimes it happens that the priest runs out of consecrated hosts and he has to start, he's got one left and there are four people in line, right? And so he has to break it into four and you might get, or even into eight or something and you get a tiny little piece. And Jesus is just as much present in the fragment as, and so how should we understand that? So that's what I wanna look at now. So it's a special mode of being present, not so I'm gonna make a distinction here that's gonna confuse you maybe. Um, a body is present under the mode of quantity. Quantity or dimension, meaning part outside of part. How is our soul present in our body? Is it present in that kind of way? Part outside of part? Is a part of my soul and my pinky and another part of my thumb? Of course not, right? Our soul has gotta be whole and entire under every part. Right? The whole of my soul is in my pinky, just as it's in my head and in my foot. That's true. It'll, it'll just simply now be in all the rest of me, right? Because it gets severed from it. Let's take another example. Um, right? So the severed pinky won't have my soul in it anymore. Um, let's take the example of simply bread and wine. The quantity of the bread right, is parts outside of parts. Part of the quantity here, part of the quantity there. What about the substance of bread? 
The essence of bread, is it part there and part there? No, right? It's whole and entire, the substance or essence of bread under any part of it. And isn't the same true of wine? Right? It doesn't matter if I have um, a big goblet or a drop. I've got the same essence of wine under both. Theologians call that the mode of substance, and that's to be whole and entire under every part. All right. How is Jesus present in the Eucharist? Part outside of part in the mode of quantity or whole and entire under every part in the mode of substance? One or two? Two. The second one. Jesus present in the Eucharist, in, we can say in the mode of substance. Why? Because of transubstantiation. One substance has become another substance. And Jesus is now under the appearance of bread and wine in the way that the substance of bread and wine was under it before, whole and entire under every part. How do we know this? By the liturgy. In the liturgy, and every Christians in every age knew this, it didn't matter what size host you receive. And it doesn't matter if you receive one or two. There's a story about St. Therese. She was feeling down, and um, she was thinking probably the priest would give her just half of a host. And instead, she got two. And it doesn't make any difference, right? We see the same Jesus. And, and so the same thing is true even of the particles, right? So I, if a crumb falls on the ground, we shouldn't just step on it because Jesus is present, whole and entire, under every part. Does that make sense to everyone? So we know this by the liturgy, but it goes together with our explanation. Transubstantiation. Jesus comes to be present in a, a miraculous way, a sacramental way. But it, here we have some analogy, sort of like the presence of our soul in our whole body, whole and entire. Sort of like the presence of this substance or essence of bread and wine, whole and entire under every part. And for this reason, we said whole and entire. The words directly say, my body, right? This is my body. But Jesus becomes present, we said, whole and entire. So what else comes present with his body? His divinity, that's part of him. What else? His blood and his soul. Because they all hang together. Right? There's a special technical term for that, concomitance. So that's why it doesn't matter if we receive Jesus under one species or under two, because we receive the whole of him. Uh, next time, we'll give the reason why there are two species. That has to do with the sacrifice. But for the real presence, it doesn't matter. We receive the whole of him under either one. Does that make sense? Let me end with one last strange thought. If Mass had been celebrated, there's no reason to think it was, but let's suppose that Mass, Peter celebrated Mass on Holy Saturday, the day after Good Friday, before Jesus rose from the dead. Let's, so when if Peter had done this, when he said, this is my body, what would be there? Just his body. Because at that moment, his body was really separated from his blood. Right? That's what happened when he died. His blood got poured out from his body. Right, and came out from his side. So if Mass had been celebrated on Holy Saturday, under the species of bread, there would have just been body. And under the species of blood, of, of wine, just blood. 
and his soul would have been in either? No, because that's what death is. The soul got separated from both his body and blood. What about his divinity? That, yes, that would have been there because what God took up in the incarnation, he never let go. That was still the dead body of God. All right, Mass wasn't celebrating that. Jesus rose the next day. Now, body, blood, soul, and divinity are absolutely inseparable, right? The divinity was always inseparable, but now the body and blood and soul are also inseparable because he, they came back together. That's why when we receive Jesus, just under, we receive his body, we receive the whole of him, right? We'll start with this next time and bring questions before we go on into the sacrifice of the mass, okay? All right, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, almighty God, for giving us the gift of the Eucharist through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.